I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare. Today on Lawfare Noble, on December 6th, the Colorado Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the appeal of the Denver District Court decision that found that former President Donald Trump, quote, engaged in insurrection, end quote, but could not be disqualified from primary and general election ballots in Colorado because of the language of Section 3. The arguments in front of the state Supreme Court centered on whether the presidency is an office under the United States, whether the president is an officer of the United States, whether Trump engaged in insurrection, and how the issues may conflict with Trump's First Amendment rights. All right, welcome everybody. Um, before we start, I want to acknowledge something, and obviously we've read the briefs, and there are a lot of strong opinions in this case um, on both sides of the aisle. Um, I just want to remind everybody that we expect appropriate decorum in the courtroom. If you feel like you can't maintain your composure, please step out, take a minute, and come back in when you're ready. We certainly don't want to escort anybody out, so we appreciate your professionalism. All right, with that, the court will call 23SA3000, Anderson et al. versus Griswold, and intervener Colorado State Republican Committee, and intervener Donald J. Trump. Counsel, uh, who are going to be making an argument if you'll enter your appearances at the podium so people online will know who's speaking. I'd appreciate it. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Jason Murray for petitioners, and I will be handling for 20 minutes the issues presented in petitioners' affirmative appeal. All right. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Eric Olson, also for petitioners. I will be responding to Trump's appeal. All right. Welcome. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, Scott Gessler on behalf of President Trump. Um, I'll be handling all argument for uh, President Trump and the other side of the uh, right. matter. All right. Welcome. All right. Um, matter is set for two hours, so each side will have an hour for argument. Um, I understand, Mr. Murray, you've indicated 20 minutes. That's aspirational. Um, you'll have to keep track of your own time and then Depending on how you want to handle it, you can leave any time left over for rebuttal. But we're not dividing it up in terms of, uh, you know, appellant not. We're just, you guys will have the first argument, and then there'll be the response, and then you can reply. And Mr. Murray, you can begin when you're ready. May it please the court. Section three of the 14th Amendment is our Constitution's self-defense mechanism. It stands for the idea that those who took an oath to support the Constitution and then betrayed that sacred duty by engaging in insurrection against it cannot again be entrusted with public office. After finding that Trump engaged in insurrection, the district court nevertheless held that he is allowed to run for president again. That ruling was wrong for three reasons. First, it was wrong on the text, because the broad words office and officer clearly include the office of the presidency and the person who holds it. Second, it was wrong on the history, because the one thing that supporters and opponents of the 14th Amendment agreed on at the time was that it disqualified leading rebels like Jefferson Davis from holding any positions of substantial federal power up to and including the presidency. And third, 
it was contrary to Section 3's core purpose. Because who could more easily subvert our democracy from within than a commander-in-chief who has already tried to do so before? This court should reverse. I'd like to start with the issue of whether the office of the presidency is a disqualified position, an office under the United States, because I think that question resolves the question of whether the president is an officer. As a preliminary matter, good morning to you, or good afternoon, Mr. Murray. Do you think the provision is ambiguous? We do not think the provision is ambiguous, Your Honor. The Constitution tells us over and over that the presidency is an office and that the person who holds it swears an oath of office before assuming the execution of his office. And the plain meaning of an officer is just one who holds an office. So, so we think the text here is very clear that the history supports it, uh, and certainly that the core purpose of the provision supports that reading as well. Pre President Trump re relies on what we see as strained inferences from drafting history and canons of construction on the issue of whether the presidency is an office under the United States. And you don't resort to those tools when the Constitution already tells you what the answer is. Section 3 applies to any office. And any means any, and the presidency is an office. But in addition, the history here could not be more clear. Well, before you get to history, I'm going to stick with you on the text. It says, any office dot, 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 under the United States. Is there, can you cite me a provision in the Constitution where the presidency is defined as an office of the United States or an office under the United States? Yes, it says, holds this office repeatedly. But I, I think Mr. Gessler will take you on on the text. And it will not, it doesn't say, I'm not sure it says ever, the president is an officer under or of the United States. Well, a, a few responses to that. First, I, I think it would be strange to say the presidency's office, the office of the presidency is anything else. The Constitution uses under the United States to compare federal offices to those under any state. Uh, and, and second, the Constitution uses the phrase office under the United States a bunch of times in contexts that I think pretty clearly include the president. So for example, Article 1, Section 6 says no person holding any office under the United States can simultaneously be a member of Congress. And basic separation of powers principles tell us that the president can't be a sitting member of Congress too and vote for the very bills that the president is going to decide how to implement and whether or not to veto. What about the use of officer of the United States in Article 2 and Article 6 in a way that seems to be distinguished from the president? I disagree that those are distinguished from the president. Let's take Article 6 first. Article 6 just says that all executive and judicial officers and legislative officers have to take an oath to support the Constitution. And the president does just that. Um, now, Article 6 doesn't tell us what exact words that oath has to use. Now, Article 2 tells us for the president and the president alone that his oath is the strictest one anywhere in the Constitution. He has to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. But that is an oath to support the Constitution. So, so why doesn't Article 6 refer to the president specifically then? Because it doesn't why? need to. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please, go ahead. Uh, because it doesn't need to. Because Article 6 refers to any officer of the United States, and the president holds an office, and so he is an officer. And, and I would add that on Article 2's usage of 
the phrase officer. In particular, for example, the commissions clause, which just says that the president shall commission all the officers of the United States, that's, that's just describing the powers of the president. That's making clear that it is the president and nobody else who commissions the officers. But it would be a bit of a strange way to imply the president is not an officer to do so in a provision that's talking about just who is the one who does the commissioning. Well, <clears throat> but if we put together thinking about Justice Marcus's question and the commission question, nowhere in any of the references to officer does the Constitution list the president, and it does say that the president commissions all officers. So thinking about those two facts together, does that suggest that the president is not an officer because he's never listed as one, and he commissions all of them? And I, I see only, I say he only because of historical reality. <laughs> Understood. I think one could try to create some ambiguity if you look at those provisions alone. But I think stepping back and just looking at the fact that the Constitution tells us that the president holds an office makes very clear that the president is an officer and that the general term was intended to cover the president. And I would say that not only do dictionaries at the time of the original Constitution define an officer as simply one who holds an office. But that was also very clear by the time the 14th Amendment was ratified 80 years later. And I would direct the court's attention not only to the definitions that we cited in our brief, uh, but also to a source that Trump cites in his reply brief at footnote 54. He cites the uh, John Beauvoir's Law Dictionary from 1856 and he cites that for a definition of insurrection, which doesn't support what he's trying to say. But John Beauvoir also defines officer as simply, quote, he who is lawfully invested with an office. That's the first definition in that dictionary of officer. And then the first example that dictionary definition gives is executive officers like the president of the United States. So if you're asking the question, what did the people 80 years later, when they ratified the 14th Amendment, think they were including by using office and officer, they would have understood that those things were synonymous. And the presidents at the time were telling the public in presidential proclamations, and members of Congress were telling them in speeches that the president was the chief executive officer of the United States. So I think it's hard to say that the public that was considering whether to ratify the 14th Amendment would have been going back and trying to see whether there was any ambiguity in the commissions clause or the impeachment clause. They would have been relying on popular understanding, and that understanding was very clear at the time. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem odd to list specifically senator or representative in Congress and not specify president or vice president in section three? I think this is one of the observations the district court made. Uh, that, that was one of the points the district court made, and we would disagree with that because I think section three pretty clearly indicates a kitchen sink approach. They were trying to cover all positions of federal power. The president holds an office. The Constitution tells us that. Senators and representatives don't hold offices. The Constitution, at least as it was originally understood, the Constitution never once says senators hold offices. It says they hold seats in Congress. And in fact, Article 1, Section 6 says no person shall hold any office and serve as a member of Congress. 
So it would be contradictory, I think, to say members of Congress hold an office. And if you think about the definition of office, one who exercises some kind of continuing position of authority, at least arguably members of Congress don't do that on their own. They vote as part of a collective body. And that's very different from the role of the president as the chief executive officer. So picking up on that theme, the district court seemed to conceive of this listing as a descending order. I'm understanding your argument to be, no, this is about the three branches of government. Um, Is it your position that that listing that appears in Section 3 roughly correlates with the same list in Article 6? Well, I I think maybe I would put it slightly differently, which is that it, it correlates with the structure of the original Constitution. It goes in that same order. So Article 1, Senators and Representatives. Article 2, Presidential Electors. Article 2 and 3, Executive and Judicial Officers of the United States. And then, or officers under any state, would be really Article 4. So I don't think there's anything unusual about saying that Section 3 tracks the structure of the original Constitution and not the order of importance. And and I would add on that point that Trump doesn't argue that, for example, Section 3 doesn't apply to Supreme Court justices. They clearly hold an office under Article 3 of the Constitution, but they come after presidential electors. And I think it's pretty clear that they would be considered a more consequential office than a presidential elector. And the reason I keep, I'm sorry, the reason I keep bringing up Article 6 is because there's that reference in Article 6 to support the Constitution and to support the Constitution. So I, I take it it's your position that the presidency is covered under Article 6, And that oath to support the Constitution is simply everyone is required to take an oath to support the Constitution. The presidency has a very particular oath uh, dedicated, you know, protect, defend the president. Sorry, protect and defend the Constitution. That's, That's exactly right. And one point I would make on that is that Article 6 doesn't provide any specific wording for the oath. And different states over time have had different language for that oath. Sometimes it uses the word support, sometimes it doesn't. Similarly with federal positions, the language of the oath has changed over time. I think there was an understanding that support the Constitution was a concept, it wasn't magic words. And in fact, in the specific context of Section 3, we have historical authority supporting that notion. Exhibit T to our opening brief we cited was a grand jury charge from 1870, where a court was asking the question, You had a state officer who took an oath, but it didn't use the words support the Constitution of the United States. And the court instructed that for purposes of Section 3, that doesn't matter. Because supporting the Constitution is a concept. It's not sort of a linguistic, uh, you know, nicety. And that any obligation to support the Constitution counted. Speaking of... Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so speaking of linguistics, is there anything you'd like us to think, be thinking about in terms of intra-sentence uniformity versus non-uniformity? It, it's a great question. I think Trump wants to argue that because officer and office are different words, they must mean something different. But if you look at Section 3, there's actually a real symmetry there. And the difference comes in, in different words that are used when you're talking about positions versus individuals. So Section 3 says no person shall hold the position as a senator or representative in Congress, and people are disqualified if they're insurrectionists who were members of Congress. Now, those two things, I think, clearly mean the same thing, uh, different words for positions and individuals, and so, too, any office under the United States. 
and an officer of the United States. And that's exactly what Attorney General Stanberry said in interpreting Section 3, was what is an officer of the United States? Well, we're using that in its most general sense, anyone who holds a federal office. Well, let me ask you, I guess, two questions, one on that and one on history. What do we do with the Free Enterprise Fund case where uh, the Chief Justice said people don't vote for officers of the United States? Well, this is one place where I might agree with Donald Trump, not what he says in this court now, but with what he said in a court in New York, where he said cases like Free Enterprise Fund, they're interpreting the Appointments Clause. And the Appointments Clause says the president appoints all other officers of the United States. And clearly, when you're talking about appointing other officers, you're not talking about the president. And so, and that's usually how the question of officer of the United States comes up in these cases is, are we talking about a mere employee or are we talking about an appointed officer? All right, I understand. So let me ask you now the historical question. You referred to the history a few times. Um, obviously, the first draft of Section 3 included the president and the vice president, and that got removed. And my understanding is your position is, yeah, they removed that and broadened the other officers at the end of that. I'm curious if there's any legislative history, quote unquote, to support that. It, it's a great question. First of all, That wasn't the first draft of Section 3. Section 3 didn't proceed as like one draft where language was changed over time. There were all sorts of drafts with very different scopes that changed over time. And there's not a clear indication oftentimes of why a particular draft became the predominant draft. But I would also say in in the context of that particular uh, proposed amendment to Section 3 by Representative McKee, uh, the, the original language covered appointed officers of the United States and it specifically covered the president. Later, Representative McKee offered a different draft, and that draft just said any office of trust or profit under the United States. So it didn't mention the president, it just referred to any office. And Representative McKee, in defending that proposal, he never said, I'm excluding the president. To the contrary, what he said was that this proposal will exclude traitors from all positions of power in the nation, and it will prevent people from voting for any, quote, but those who are loyal. And that is at Congressional Globe, 39th Congress, first session at 2504 to 2505. And more, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, oh, please, Justice. I, I was just going to add that, that more broadly, one thing the history does make very clear is that by the time we got to the final version of Section 3, everybody, including opponents of the 14th Amendment, knew that people like Jefferson Davis couldn't be president anymore. So I was expecting you to follow up with the Johnson Moral Exchange, right? You get that a lot of play in the briefs. I won't take up time to explain what it is. You understand what I'm referencing. During the congressional debate, um, there was an exchange that you attribute some significance to, and some scholarly literature from Professor Lash, questions that obviously opposing counsel has. Can you uh, respond to their criticism of your emphasis on that one exchange? Certainly, two things about that exchange, Your Honor. The first is that Reverdy Johnson was, t- took a quick look at the provision and said, why did you exclude the presidency? And, and I think the thrust of his question was, it would be absurd to exclude the presidency. And I think that's what everybody at the time was thinking, was of course we're gonna cover the highest office. And the response by Senator Morrill was, well, it does include the presidency, look at the phrase, any office under the United States, and then Reverdy Johnson agreed. And nobody came back later in the debate and said, 
well, actually, that language is somehow ambiguous. And so one of the responses has been that that acquiescence may have just been out of collegiality and you know, why are we reading so much into one exchange that might have been nothing more than a nicety? Well, I mean, certainly that's Trump's argument, but I think that if there were some intent to exclude the presidency from Section 3, given how important that would be, I mean, think about that. You'd be saying that a, a rebel who took up arms against the government couldn't be a county sheriff, but could be the president. That would be a really big thing. And, and you'd think we would see some indication in the history of somebody coming back and saying, no, we're carving this out because it's somehow different. And there's just no indication of that at all. Right. I guess I just struggle with how much significance we should attribute to the McKee draft or the Johnson Moral Exchange. These things seem to be sort of conveniently plucked. I'm not sure how instructive they ultimately are in the grand scheme of things. I, I think there's always a question of how instructive legislative history is. And I think here, where the text is so clear, and where the consequences of saying that the presidency is not an office under the United States would be so bizarre, because you'd be saying that, for example, in Article 6, Congress can impose a religious test for no office except the presidency. And I guess you could require the president to be a Jehovah's Witness. Or that no office under the United States, the holder of them can accept bribes from foreign kings or princes under the Emoluments Clause, but that because the presidency is not an office under the United States, the president can go to a foreign prince and ask them for a title of nobility. And that, those, those results are just so counterintuitive to our constitutional structure that a careful parsing of legislative history here, I think, is, is interesting, but really not terribly necessary. But if it was so important that the president be included, I come back to the question, why not spell it out? Why not include president and vice president the way you spell out, uh, they spelled out senator or representative? Well, I, I, and I guess I go back to the, the kitchen sink approach, right? They used a really broad phrase, any office under, and then they wanted to include the handful of things that may not fall in that catch-all. I think they all, everybody knew that the presidency was an office under. And, and along those lines, I just direct the court's attention to about you know, a dozen sources from speeches and newspapers that we've cited in our brief. Both supporters and opponents of Section 3 had no difficulty understanding this, uh, including opponents. So exhibit AD of our brief, we cite an example of a, a rather racist opponent of the 14th Amendment who was saying it was kind of deeply unfair in his mind that black Americans like Frederick Douglass could be president, but no person under a disability of Section 3 could. It wasn't just radical Republicans saying this. Everybody at the time knew Jefferson Davis couldn't be president and that any office included the presidency. So to oversimplify, or perhaps oversimplify, your reading of Section 3 really is members of Congress who are not officers, electors who are not officers, and then all officers. That's exactly right. That is our reading, Justice Gabriel. And I see that my 20 minutes has, has expired. Thank you. All right. Mr. Olson, when you're ready. Thank you very much, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Trump levies two types of complaints against the finding below, but neither should disturb the district court's holding that Trump engaged in insurrection against the Constitution. 
First, he complains that the district court's finding that he engaged in insurrection was unsupported by the facts. But he ignores the worst facts that make clear the district court was correct to, to find that Trump gathered, summoned, and incited a violent mob that stopped the constitutional transfer of power on January 6th. Mr. Olson, I'm going to um, stop you there because I think, was the district court in a position to make those findings? That is, did the district court have jurisdiction is a pretty fundamental question here. Yes, the district court did have jurisdiction, um, and I can walk you through exactly how we get there. Article 2 of the Constitution gives states great latitude in how they select presidential candidates. Under that latitude, Colorado has enacted an election code that gives district courts, including specifically in presidential primary elections like we have here, the authority to conduct the qualification disputes like we, like we had here. So yes, the district court had jurisdiction using the authority that the Constitution gives Colorado, and Colorado, unlike many other states, has chosen to implement that authority with this pre-election challenge under Section 11113, which Section 141204 incorporates specifically, which allows for electors, voters, to challenge uh, a, a wrongful act or about to commit a wrongful act by the secretary and as testimony uh, at the hearing uh, from Ms. Hillary Rudy indicated, the way in which that plays out in Colorado under that statutory scheme is that the secretary makes initial determinations that are easily determined. And then following this court's decision in Kuhn and Frazier, additional evidence can be brought to bear in section 11113 proceedings that allow for the qualification proceeding, uh, the qualification dispute to be resolved. So, if I'm understanding that argument, the secretary itself, or herself in this case, could not conduct an evaluation of the constitutional qualifications of, the, of, of someone to go on the ballot. No, I would disagree with that. The testimony of the practice, which was consistent, is, and we, we have the Hassan case from a few years ago where a presidential candidate said, I am not a natural born citizen as that is currently defined. I therefore cannot sign the, the, the attestation that's required that says I meet all qualifications. In that uh, circumstance, the secretary sent a letter and said it is my job to keep, make sure that only qualified people are on the ballot in Hassan. Uh, because you are constitutionally not qualified, you're not on the ballot. Hassan then sued and then Judge Gorsuch on the 10th Circuit affirmed the secretary's authority and decision. Now, that was under federal law, not uh, the 1113 procedure. And it was two paragraphs and not exactly a deep dive on our election code. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree, but the core principle was not in dispute and animates the way in which our election code works to basically allow for process to occur so it isn't just the secretary uh, uh, making this decision of, of hard to find. But as this court recognized in Frazier, even simple questions like residency can be really hard to figure out sometimes and require a lot of evidence and and. But that's still, here's my, oh, I was going to say, here's my concern. Um, the secretary's duties under the provisions that govern presidential primaries very clearly are limited to making sure that a presidential primary candidate is a bona fide candidate under party rules 
and has timely submitted a certificate of intent. That certificate of intent includes the Article II affirmative qualifications of age, residency, and citizenship. That's it. And in the Hassan case, as you pointed out, the candidate was unable to comply with that. So there's a very clear duty expressed in 1204 or one actually, uh, saying that the secretary cannot certify such a candidate. Where is the duty here to examine other constitutional qualifications? Or are you instead relying on the wrongful act language to support your petition under 113? So, so let me point to three uh, authorities that may help us resolve this question and your concern, Justice Marquez. The first is, is that Section 14201, which is the presidential primary part of the election code, says that the purpose uh, is, the intent of the people is to conform to the requirements of federal law. Federal law governing the conducting of presidential primary elections. I don't think it's so limited. I think it's, it's more general. I think that it, it is federal law, which is, includes constitutional requirements. Um, second, I would point to 1412033, which says that presidential primary elections must be conducted in the same manner as any other primary election, which brings in 14501, which is sort of the general qualifications clause for state candidates, which certainly empowers courts to look at it. So can, I, can I interrupt yeah. you right there? I, I, I believe your reliance on 501 actually undercuts your argument for a couple of reasons. One, the, the sort of boilerplate about election officials must conduct primary elections consistent with general elections. That is boilerplate that appears elsewhere in the code. Uh, and so I don't know that it has a whole lot of magic to it. It doesn't expressly incorporate 501. And more importantly, 501 is limited to state offices. So how is that connected in any way to establishing constitutional qualifications for a presidential candidate? So two ways, Your Honor. First is when, so section 14501 is in the, the state candidate section of the code. When the presidential primary section, which was passed recently, says we want to do presidential primaries sort of the same way that we do all these other primaries, our position is that that brings in the process of 14501, but doesn't include the limitation in 14501 because it would be silly to read at to read that as only applying to uh, state candidates. And the second is that Ms. Rudy's testimony at, at trial was that these qualifications, these constitutional qualifications, aren't just the three checkboxes. That it says on the um, the bottom of the form, the attestation that you, that you must file, that you meet all qualifications. Section 3 is a qualification in the Constitution that someone must check that they, they, they meet. And if the secretary certifies someone under that authority that doesn't meet all qualifications, that is a wrongful act. And, and that is a wrongful act that we challenge here in 11113. I hope that addressed your question. Mr. Olson, I want, I want to hear, you never finished the start of your answer, and I'd like to hear all of it. You said there are three statutory provisions you're relying on. Could you please finish that answer? Yes. So the third statutory provision is uh, 112, I'm sorry, 
2A, which talks about political parties putting a, quote, qualified candidate on the ballot. Now, that, that section is directed to parties, but it requires that for a party to put a candidate on the ballot, it has to be a, quote, qualified candidate. And it is passing strange from our perspective to say that where the, the goal is to conform to the requirements of federal law, that we have a robust system to allow for challenges to candidate qualifications so, of all types, to exclude one particular qualification um, because it occurred in the Constitution, uh, our most important document, rather than somewhere else. So I'm just wondering if you can respond to the arguments made um, in part at the end of um, Professor Muller's amicus brief in which, um, for example, in looking at 1201, he talks about how the phrase governing presidential primary elections, as Justice Marcus just suggested, seems to modify both national political party rules and the requirement that Part 12 conform to the requirements of federal law. So if that's the case, is that, does that matter? from your perspective, if it does? Well, I certainly think that this court's pronouncement on how uh, ballot qualification challenges occur in Colorado is more uh, compelling than than Professor Mueller's account. Because think of the consequences of that proposal, which is we have a system where qualification disputes occur in, in, as this court is well aware, nearly every election cycle, where all sorts of issues are raised, but we are cutting out a class of qualifications that are important for our most important office in saying state courts can't look at those. Do you, do you agree that the phrase modifies conform to the right requirements of federal law? No, I think it, I, I, I disagree with that. I, I think it's... It, it, and why do you disagree? Because he points to, oh God, I, I'm going to actually say this, po- post-positive modifiers, right? And how that seemed to be an example of that. And he cites the Scalia-Garner text on reading law. Um, yeah, the, why, is, why is that mode of analysis wrong? Because it does seem to apply here to that phrase. Well, I'm afraid that I'm not as well-versed in the uh, descriptions of the various theories of interpretation. And, and I would focus on uh, two things. Uh, Justice Hood in response. Mm. One is what I just said, which is um, just like in the office officer discussion you had with my colleague, it seems absurd to not allow these kind of qualification events to occur when they're an essential part of what we do. And the Constitution gives Colorado through Article Article 2 such authority in figuring out how to run their elections. Well, see, I wonder whether another answer to the question might be that um, the um, it, it becomes a question of whether um, Section 3 constitutes a requirement of federal law governing presidential primary elections. And if the answer is yes, even adopting his construction, if the answer to that is yes, then the people are, of the state of Colorado are saying they want to see conformity with Section 3. So, you know, I, I, I'm wondering whether the construction that he's urging is really detrimental to your case in the final analysis. Well, it may or may not be. The, the national party in this case has said they can nominate an unqualified candidate. And, and if they have the legal authority to do that, we don't think they do, then I would, it would be a challenge for our case if, if the national party rule said you can put an unqualified candidate on the ballot. We don't believe that's the case, but under their interpretation, it would be a challenge. But we think the more natural reading uh, is that when you say conform to the requirements of federal law, that 
governing presidential primary elections, right? If we were to take the party rules component out of there and just say that those other two phrases are tethered to one another, then does it does it really matter? And I, I feel that like circumstance, no. Um, but uh, so so if that was your early question, I apologize. That's I'm, what I was trying to say. Okay. I probably didn't say it very well. So 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 I, I don't think it it matters, but. Again, we come back to sort of the common sense reading of our state statute of how we do this, which is to allow courts, like the district court did here, to, to hear the qualification uh, disputes, uh, even uh, under federal law. Well, let me ask you about that, Mr. Olson. Good afternoon to you. I'd ask you to, to address the intervener's argument here, and I guess this goes to prudential concerns under justiciability. You say that this, uh, all the state's uh, election officials, state secretaries, have the authority to decide how to run primaries. They take the position that that could create chaos. You could have 50 different states' attorneys, states' secretaries of state, um, deciding differently, and this really needs to be national. I take that as fitting within the prudential concerns under justiciability. Can I ask you to respond to their argument? Sure, Justice Gabriel. I think I would say three things in response. The first is um, most secretaries of state don't have the authority to evaluate uh, qualifications, even the way in which Colorado does we, for primary elections. We saw that in the Michigan uh, and Minnesota cases where they said, their state laws, their execution of their Article II authority allows purely ministerial. They, they take the piece of paper from the party and they put that person on, on the ballot for the primary. Here we have a different rule, uh, and so that leads to my second point, which is um, it, it won't lead to chaos. This is the only court in the country that has looked at this question. There are other courts where lawsuits have been filed, but as I mentioned, those lawsuits haven't proceeded, so different courts do it differently. Colorado has done it this way, and we have an opinion that's on appeal before this court. And so I think the, the concern of a bunch of things happening is overblown. And the third thing I would say is that the legal standards here that really matter, what does engaged in mean, what's an insurrection, et cetera, will be uh, figured out pretty quickly um, if there are uh, different approaches to that. And the answer in these ballot dispute uh, the ballot access dispute cases are binary. It's not that there's going to be a whole bunch of different standards floating around. There's going to be either yes or no. And so I think the concern of overblown, the concern of a patchwork is overblown, particularly when, you know, the, the, the justiciability inquiry looks at, is there a textual commitment to a coordinate branch of government? Well, let me jump in for a second. I mean, that's under... Um if you're looking at um, sort of the political piece of it, right, and you're looking at Baker, but there's sort of other more prudential concerns, and, and perhaps that's what Justice Gabriel was asking about, and perhaps not. But can you can you sort of parse that out? Sure, I would say so. Political question doctrine versus sort of broader, more general, of the type perhaps talked about in Powell. Yeah. So I, I would I would say two things in response, Justice Birkenkotter, and the first is is that. Um, just because this is a politically salient question and has political consequences is the reason for the court to enforce our constitutional qualification, to honor the promise that we've made to each other in our document and say that those who engage in insurrection, no matter how popular they are, are uh, not to be, having broken an oath engaging in insurrection are not to be allowed in that position again. And so the second is, is that there are 
very easily manageable standards here, as I just mentioned. This is not a case where you're having to, a court is having to put themselves, you know, balancing foreign policy interests and all sorts of, of uh, interests that are assigned to a different branch of government. This is a straightforward application of our Constitution. So, but, but even if you, I mean, even if I'm persuaded on prong one and prong two of Baker, which is really what you're talking about, isn't there this other sort of prudential concern? And that goes to this idea of if you have, you know, whether it's 50 states or 30 states or 17 states, um, you're going to have chaos. Can you talk more specifically about that? So I, I would come back to, to my answer to Justice Gabriel, that the, the, the way the state laws are, are implement on this issue under the Article II authority, there simply isn't going to, aren't going to be very many other proceedings like this because Colorado has chosen to implement this in a, in a unique way. But even if there are, that's okay. How many of these cases are there altogether? Well, the, of, the, of this sort of general type? There are a number of general types, but a number of them are filed by the same individual who marches into federal court. There's clearly no standing in federal court to, to bring these claims. So of the, the, the cases where people were prepared to actually put on evidence, there's just a handful. And this is the only one that has proceeded to the merits. So, Mr. Olson, should we be concerned about that as we think about the Republican citizens of Colorado or unaffiliated un, uh, folks who want to cast a ballot in the Republican primary? If if what you're saying is correct, President Trump will be on the ballot in most states, but not here in Colorado. So effectively, the Republican or unaffiliated voter who wants to participate in the presidential primary, Republican primary, won't really be able to participate because the person who's on most ballots and appears to be leading in the, in the primary is not an option. So Justice Hart, I think I would say two things in response. Um, the first is, other states have different mechanisms. California allows for post-election challenges where there's an unqualified candidate on the ballot. So just because there's not a pre-election qualification dispute under state law doesn't mean there won't be a, a post-election one. And then secondly, Donald Trump is disqualified for the reasons that the district court found with the, the, the one mistake of whether it applies to him. And that determination will allow for voters in Colorado to vote for qualified candidates. I would say that your hypothetical actually cuts the other way, which is we're worried about the, our clients who are Republicans and independents. They filed the suit because they want a fair shot in the Republican primary to vote for a qualified candidate and have their support for a qualified candidate not be diluted through votes for a candidate who will subsequently be disqualified. And so the pro-democracy, sort of the pro-Colorado voter perspective, which is I think what we're looking at here, is to make sure that we follow the state law and allow for these qualification decisions to occur pre-election so that the ballot reflects those who are qualified and the will of the voter can be honored. Uh, so I just wanted to take you back. Your repeated reference to qualified candidate makes me think of your third item under 141203 sub 2A. <laughs> where it talks, uh, the election code talks about qualified candidate entitled to participate in the presidential primary election, and then it ends with pursuant to this section. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what work of any pursuant to this section is doing in that sentence? Yeah, again, not to place undue significance on Professor Mueller's amicus brief, but you can remember that he suggested that that's limiting. Although as I look at uh, 1203, it doesn't seem that there are other 
qualification provisions in there. We have to go to 1204 for some of that. So I'm not sure what to make of pursuant to this section. Well, so I would read pursuant to this section as referring to sort of when and how the primary election is conducted. So they're saying uh, the pursuant to the section says, if you have a qualified candidate, then you can be on the ballot when they're going to do it the way they say they're going to do it. Simple as that. Yeah. Okay. That, that's our view there. And, and I think but, but the qualified candidate isn't limited, right? It is a qualified candidate. Uh, and but, so we... I'm sorry, as you recognize, so that provision is really about the party's right, the party's right to participate in the primary. And let's say uh, a major party had multiple candidates, three, say, one of which ends up being disqualified, the party could still, nevertheless, under this provision, participate in the primary. Correct, because it is, as your honor focuses on, it is directed towards the, uh, the party itself, but it requires that there be a qualified candidate as a, as a necessary precondition of, particip of particip and participation. Just, and it, and it, to, to me, it, it's a, it's, I'm sorry to cut you off. If, I'm sorry. I, I just, it, my sense is you're placing an enormous amount of weight on that single reference to qualified candidate in a provision that is not tethered to specific duties of the secretary. And I'm going to circle you back to 501 for just a moment, because by contrast, in 501, there is very rich language about the secretary's duties for state office. No person is eligible to be a candidate for office unless that person fully meets the qualifications of that office as stated in the Constitution and statutes of this state. If we had that language somewhere in 1204, I think we'd be having a very different conversation. But it's not there. And I'm, I'm still very concerned about how much you're trying to cram into the word qualified candidate. So we're not solely relying on the qualified candidate language. We're talking about the general function of Part 12, which says, again, as we talked about in 1201, the goal is to conform to federal law. Then we have uh, 12033 that says the same manner as any other primary election. Now, we believe that that incorporates that same 14501 language. And the, the language you uh, identified in, in 14501... Um, refers to constitution and statutes of this state. Correct. So, but but, but okay. again, that limitation... When, I mean, when you look at the history of how the presidential primary in Colorado came to be in 2017... It just, our view is it pretty clearly just bolted on a process for the presidential primary that carved out, as we talked about Justice Hood, where the national party plays a role in a way that's different uh, for, for state offices, but said, here are the specific changes that we're going to do, and everything else we're going to do the way we've been doing it. We uh, incorporate, uh, you know, to the, in 12, um, 12033, do it the same way we, we, we do all these other elections. And it would be, in our view, uh, quite astonishing to have a, a state election code that didn't allow for even basic efforts to see whether the candidate for president is qualified, where you have someone who's, you know, Hassan would come out the different way. Because the, the answer there, under, under the interpretation where uh, it's only state law qualification and reference would be, hey, you're not qualified, but under state law, we put you on. Hassan would not come out the other way because the duty has an express, I'm sorry, the secretary has an express duty under 12041 to make sure that the person submits, timely submits 
a certificate of intent, and Hassan did not submit such a statement. Well, but, but it would. And, I, and no, I you've mean, got but, lots of other things to argue, and I don't no, mean no, to well, drag we, you. We've got to get through this one together. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, what I would say is that uh, us, what we have in this case, Trump has submitted a declaration to the secretary where he has certified that he meets all qualifications to be on the ballot. And this is no different than Kuhn, where the paper said yes, but then our 11113 procedure, which is expressly adopted in part 12 of the election code, allows for the court to consider additional evidence. You don't have to take the candidate's word for it. Is that Can I certified though? Oh, I'm sorry. Go please. ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, Chief, please. Well, let me ask a fundamental question, and, and maybe this is too basic, but could the Secretary of State at the very beginning of this, before the lawsuit was filed, said, President Trump doesn't meet the qualifications under the federal constitution? The secretary, so maybe is, is the answer, the reason why okay, I hesitate. Well, then, okay, go ahead. Finish because, your answer. Because the secretary uh, testified that their practice has been where they know of disqualifying information or can readily ascertain it, they will disqualify a candidate. But where they, there's uncertainty, they will not and allow for the 11113 process to play forward. There are no funds, there's no investigative division of the Secretary of State's office that runs around and looks at this. Um, and so on these sort of harder questions, be they residency, what have you, the Secretary turns to the courts and this court has recognized over and over again that that's the proper procedure for courts to make these hard uh, questions. Okay, it, but why is that? It, it, it feels like it feels like 1113 is designed to say, Secretary of State, do your job. Plain and simple, right? I mean, is that too, too much of a simplification of that? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's if you don't do your job, people can, can bring you to court and make you do your job. Or if but there's do, a concern that she's going to violate a duty, an elector can bring her to court. Yes, right, but do your job. So why does the court then have more authority than the Secretary to then make that declaration? Because that's the way that this court, particularly in Kuhn, has interpreted our election code in the 11113. But we said we wouldn't consider a constitutional question in Kuhn, right? No. Well, in, is that, do we have to overrule that? No, not at all. In Kuhn, there was a separate constitutional cause of action. All we are seeking here is to enforce the election code under 11113. So it is not a question of, and, and just like in Hassan, where the qualification of the issue is a constitutional one, and particularly for federal offices, right, those constitutional qualifications are by definition not set by the state, they're set by our federal constitution under US term limits, that is what they are. And so those proceedings occur under 113, and in, in, in Kuhn, um, and as the Secretary's brief in this case makes clear, where a constitutional issue is the qualification, you can adjudicate that issue in a 1113 proceeding. It's not that there's a, a constitutional prohibition, for, because for some offices, that's the only qualification there can be. So your, your position, basically, the Secretary's not bound by this one-page statement that if the Secretary has information or somebody raised an issue, right? right? And apropos Correct. of that, that one-page document doesn't include that you've served two terms in office. So if the argument is the other way, 
President Obama could be put on the next ballot. And uh, Ms. Rudy testified at trial that if George Bush or President Obama were to submit an application and sign it, it would be they would not put them on the ballot because that is a readily ascertainable constitutional qualification that they don't meet. And let me ask you if I can. You've got 11 minutes left, and I know you want to save time for rebuttal. Can we get to the merits issues? So, sure. And, and let me, I'll start you off, and I, I guess I'm expressing a concern about the definition of insurrection that the district court adopted. It strikes me as somewhat or potentially overbroad. So I, let me ask you to address that. Well, I think the definition, the one to focus on is in, there's two definitions in there. Paragraph 240 is the one that applies here because it's insurrection against the Constitution. And it was a public use of force or threat of force by a group of people to hinder or prevent execution of the Constitution of the United States. Well, let me, I'll give you a hypothetical why I'm concerned. Say someone, God forbid, makes a threat to a, two, two people get together and make a threat to a judge. Um, that if you go forward with this proceeding, I'm going to do harm to the judge. Under the court's definition, that's arguably an insurrection. It's two people getting, a group of people getting together to act against the Constitution, preventing a constitutional duty. You have to take a federal judge. I don't think you would say that's an insurrection. Correct. I would not say that's an insurrection. And the reason why is because the public use of force or threat of force has a very specific meaning, which is to, for public purpose or for public end. So for more than just your purpose, right, if you're going after a particular judge for dissatisfaction. But it's a public in that we're advocating on behalf of the public using this violence for a public end, just but, like we saw in January 6th. Let me uh, stretch my hypothetical. Say the person is expressing concern the judge is too liberal or too conservative. Public expression. I don't like the judge's politics, so I'm going to take that action. That, that would not be for public purpose or public ends under this definition. It, it really requires, as we saw here, and as the, the, t the testimony of Professor Magliocca at trial talked about the historical understanding of insurrection, that there has to be a real public use of force to hinder or prevent the execution of the Constitution of the United States. And here, there can be no doubt that trying to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power by stopping the counting of the electoral votes is hindering the execution of the Constitution. The, the, the distinction then is that <clears throat> there's an attack on the authority of the government, even if it's not an effort necessarily to overthrow the government. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes, because an effort here to, to delay, just delay, use violence to delay the count would be an insurrection. Do, and I, I know you want to save time, but just very summarily, do you see much distance, if any, between the argument that you're making that the district court adopted and the uh, argument that is set forth in the Bode-Paulson article is that, I mean, they, they use slightly different words, but they seem to sort of deliver a very similar message in my estimation. Is that fair? That is fair. But I think what is crystal clear right. is that what happened on January 6th easily satisfies either definition. So let's not get lost in the weeds on the <laughs> let's test. Not, let's not get lost in the weeds. And, yeah. and, and I do want to save time uh, for about, I want to make sure I answer the court's questions uh, as well. But, but if I could end on a final comment um, and then come back for rebuttal, which is that our constitution, as we've talked about, is just a document. It's a promise to each other that we must enforce to protect our shared democracy. And committing ourselves to that constitution the rule of law comes with real fragility because our constitution commands no armies, it has no police force, 
all it has is very limited self-defense mechanisms that my colleague mentioned, and that is Section 3. And all Section 3 says that if you take an oath to support the Constitution and then turn around and attack the Constitution, you cannot be trusted to take an oath a second time because you've shown yourself unworthy and incapable of ensuring that we remain a nation ruled by law rather than by one man. Qualifications, by their very definition, limit who can vote or who, who can run for office. And Trump's argument that because he's popular, that should affect how we interpret Section 3 here could not be more dangerous. Jefferson Davis would have gotten a lot of popular support right after the Civil War. And the application of Section 3 is at its most urgent when a person who has desecrated their oath to the Constitution already seeks to become our commander-in-chief again. If we say that this conduct by this person is not enough under the Constitution, what we do is empower Trump and others to use more political violence to attack our democracy. Enforcing our Constitution enables the will of the people, and we must enforce it against unlikely candidates like Hassan and popular candidates like Trump. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for a rebuttal, but we ask that you reverse the district court's finding that Section 3 does not apply to Trump and affirm in all other respects. Mr. Olson, before you sit, I, I have a question. I, the, the grounds for disqualification here um, obviously have to do with the Section 3. Um, and I worry about the fact that Section 3 itself doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. And so here you're saying, well, Colorado state law allows us to uh, enforce it in a way. Um, and you said California has a system. Do we want uh, an approach where each state uh, decides on their own what Section 3 means or how it should apply? Uh, and then those states that don't, don't have a law like Colorado are not able to do anything about it? Um, I worry about that. Can you address that concern? Sure, Justice Samore. I would build on my answer, I think, to Justice Burke and Cotter earlier. And if I may have a couple minutes for rebuttal, even if it takes a little longer, <laughs> Justice Boatwright. Um, I, I think I'd focus on, on, on two things, which is particularly for the presidency, where Article 2 gives sweeping authority, as the Supreme Court just said in Chiafalo and Baca a couple years ago, for states to determine how to do it. There is going to be some uncertainty. Some states used to use legislators to pick their presidential electors instead of a popular vote. So some uncertainty is built into the system. And then I would say the second piece is that the legal standards that apply here under the supremacy clause of what engage insurrection means will be uniform. It may take a little bit to get there, but there is a mechanism to ensure that uniformity. And so there's no need to worry that there's going to be 50 different approaches to this issue. There's going to be uh, one approach here. Maybe another state will do it. Maybe they won't. Uh, but there's not an overwhelming um, indication that there's going to be 50 different approaches here. And the last thing I would say is even if that was the case, that's the nature of a federal system like we have. The states have broad authority, particularly where there's a specific allocation of responsibility under the Constitution. In our existing mechanisms, the courts, the Congress, the U.S. Supreme Court 
have shown their ability to keep those concerns from overwhelming uh, uh, the issue. So that's what I would say to that question. You may reserve the remainder of your time. Thank you. Thank Chief you, Justice. Mr. Olson. Mr. Gessler, when you're ready. <clears throat> that was a very steady pour. Impressive. I'm going to need that water, I think, Your Honor. <laughs> uh, members of the court, thank you very much uh, for your attention here today. Again, my name is Scott Gessler, representing uh, President Trump in this matter. Uh, time permitting, this is a big case, I'll try to talk about why this court should not exercise jurisdiction under 113 and 1204 under the principles set forth in Frazier versus Williams and Kuhn versus Williams. Uh, I'd like to talk about the uh, textual structure, the officer of the United States, the office under the United States and the oath, the textual structure. Um, and time permitting, I'd like to talk about uh, the issue, the legal standard of engagement and of course insurrection as well that have been asked, um, and then perhaps get to the, uh, the infirmities of the court using the January 6th report. I know there's a lot, please feel free to interrupt me and move from one section as members of the court see Just fit. before you dive in, it, I did not hear um, political question doctrine on that list, uh, so is I that put that under the category of enforcement okay. here, uh, Thank broader you. federal enforcement. So um, we sort of view, when you talk about self-execution, preemption, political question, they are sort of intertwined with some of the same considerations, in part because of the difficulties of applying uh, consistent standards, which, um, which ties into the fact that uh, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment creates a specific enforcement um, authority to Congress, which was recognized in the Griffin's case here. So that does sort of talk about the just disability. I can dive into that section if Let's you want right there. now. Let's start there. I'm sorry? Let's start there. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Your Honor, so enforcement is the, is the proper framework, and, um, and this is a non-justiciable question, and there are prudential concerns that 3,000 different state jurisdictions will approach this, in different ways. Now, I understand that the petitioners have said, well, that's okay. Under Article II powers, states can do whatever they want. Well, that's not true. States can't do whatever they want under the Article II powers. Um, there are still, nonetheless, constitutional um, mandates, for example, in petitions. Uh, states have to behave a certain way, as in Anderson versus Celebrezzi, for presidential candidates. Um, and in fact, in Anderson versus Celebrezzi, the court said that the state interests are lessened when it comes to a presidential candidate. An invocation of Article II powers to choose presidential electors, that's not an enforcement mechanism in the sense of a judicial enforcement following a law. It's a political process, and it's a value decision. The people of the state of Colorado could, for example, if they amended Section 20 of the Schedule Constitution. That requires, um, uh, that requires allocation of electors by popular vote. But if they amended that, they could say, we don't want anyone with gray hair. We don't want anyone over five foot two, okay? They can create those through political value decisions. That's not an enforcement mechanism of section three. Well, let, let me just ask you directly about that to go right to the point. I, I, obviously, you focus on section five, and it says, you know, it gives authority to Congress to enforce the 14th Amendment. It doesn't say exclusive authority, but my concern is this, if, if we have to rely on that as the enforcement mechanism and, and the 14th Amendment is not self-executing, 
then the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause are not self-executing. So Congress could nullify both of those by doing nothing and taking no action. That's concerning. The 13th Amendment has the same language. I don't think anyone would say that Congress needs to act to enforce the abolition of slavery. So help me understand how, how do we get to self-executing here? So I think Justice Chase would disagree with that characterization with respect to the consequences. Um, in the Griffins case, which I think was discussed at length in uh, Professor Tillman's amicus brief, uh, Justice Chase basically created sort of the sword versus shield distinction, that in the Jefferson Davis case. And in the Griffiths, Griffins case, he said that, I think he did use the word executing, that the that the Section 3 does not, self, does not execute itself. In fact, it requires implementing legislation. Now, that was from a Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. I recognize he was writing circuit in Virginia. But Congress then almost immediately did what he suggested or what he demanded to be done. In other words, it, it, it passed the Enforcement Act. That's consistent. Oh, but sorry to interrupt, Mr. Gessler. To come back, I guess, to Justice Gabriel's question, the, the fact that Congress passed enforce one form of enforcement legislation doesn't mean that there might not be other ways that the that section three um, comes into play they didn't they didn't cover the field well I, I, that's fair standing on, on its own but in response we still have justice Griffin's Justice Chase's decision in the Griffin's case and remember Justice Chase took a very muscular view of um, use of the 14th Amendment. He, he dissented in the slaughterhouse cases and specifically decried the limitation of the privileges and immunities um, portion of section of uh, Amendment 14. So, um, but when you look at section five of the 14th Amendment, why do we even need that? Well, Congress thought we needed it. Congress thought that, con that I'm sorry, the framers thought we needed it. They thought they needed it in order to grant Congress that authority. They didn't grant the state's authority. Now, one can say, well, that means nothing. But actually, if you look at the 14th <coughs> Amendment, the whole purpose of the 14th Amendment was to limit state's authority. It would be very counterintuitive otherwise. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so can you point us, though, to sort of that, you know, the textually demonstrative constitutional commitment? You, I think, as I understand your argument, you're sort of asking us to look at the gestalt, right? You want us to look at the whole, these four separate parts of the Constitution, and sort of stitch them together and say, you know, look at that in terms of this first prong of Baker. Is that correct? Can you point me to something specific? So with respect to the four prongs of the Constitution you're referring to? Your argument with respect to um, how this is, um, how we are foreclosed under the political question doctrine. Sorry, I'm pivoting around here. No problem there. Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Uh, one is the prudential reason that had been discussed, which is, a multiplicity of different states. Uh, the petitioners mentioned that California does a post-election uh, opportunity for attack. So that may be one way. New Hampshire has said that despite the Hassan case, they had the exact same situation as in Colorado. They don't have the authority. So you do have a patchwork where voters are going to be treated differently and affected across the country. And that is somewhat chaotic. Um, Isn't part of the answer to that that uh, if we were to say that uh, President Trump can't be on the ballot here, um, it's, there's a very high probability that uh, the United States Supreme Court would step in and, and decide what the standards should be, one would think, um, so there wouldn't be the same potential for the chaos that you're describing. Is that, is that not a fair response? 
Well, President Trump would certainly think that, yes, we would want to appeal it. But I don't think that the court should rely upon the hope that the U.S. Supreme Court will create, will step in. We should, the standard is we should look at that in advance and prevent that uh, bad situation from occurring in the first place. Those are the prudential concerns. But let me, let me pick up on, and really the point you made, which was we have this today. We haven't had chaos in well over 200 years. I mean, states have these authorities. States, California has one mechanism. New Hampshire has a different one. I'm not so sure that there, we have the crisis that you might suggest. Those mechanisms are procedures. They're not the substantive application of Section 3. There is a difference there. When we talk about procedures, yes, New Hampshire has a different set of laws for qualification than Colorado. But those are all different procedures. Well, They're not the you, substantive application of a disqualification standard. For, forgive me, Mr. Gessler, so let me ask you about that. So can the Secretary of State disqualify a candidate who is not born in the United States? That's a question. I don't think there's a statutory authority for them to do that. Now, now the petitioner has said, well, Hillary Rudy testified to this and that, and deep respect for her, but that doesn't define what a state's authority is. We have 1204, which requires a statement of intent. And the question is, is the form for 1204, does that carry the force of law? That's really sort of the question. Well, it's so a constitutional qualification. That's why I was asking the question. I mean, that there's some suggestion that we should look at different qualifications differently. The 35-year age limit and, and the um, born in the United States are one thing, but you know, uh, the 14th Amendment is something different. That's why I was asking. Right. First of all, I'd say the 14th Amendment's not a qualification. It is a disqualification. And in fact, if we even look back to McKee's original um, introduction of that legislation, that talked about qualification and holding, whereas Section 3 only talks about holding. So I would probably not concede the point um, on qualifications. Um, so actually, to, to that, and I know we're going back and forth between political question and, and I suppose the question of whether Section 3 is self-executing, um, but as you say, it's a disqualification. Um, the only thing that the 14th Amendment says that Congress um, can do is remove the disqualification. Doesn't that suggest that the disqualification attaches independent of any act of Congress? Otherwise, they'd have nothing to remove. They, did they have to say that Jefferson Davis um, met the definition of an insurrectionist under the 14th Amendment? Um, I, I would disagree that... Section 3, that last clause, can't be read in isolation from Section 5 enabling legislation. And the Section 3 congressional action is more akin to, a, to the powers of a, a presidential pardon. It's, it's essentially a pardon mechanism. And I don't think one can draw the inference that that forecloses or affects the, the substantive law that allows that disability to go, come into effect. You look quizzical, Your Honor. I am, I am in fact, quizzical. Um, so, <laughs> go ahead. May I jump so, in? Yeah. Justice Gabriel, were you done with your answer? Yeah. So you mentioned these prudential considerations and, um, you know, let's, let's avoid chaos. One of the counter arguments is that by um, failing to resolve this issue on the merits now, we create the potential for chaos in January of 2025. Um, and so... It, there's much emphasis on this in the scholarly literature about how it, it may be better for, for us to try to resolve it sooner rather than leave the potential for a constitutional crisis uh, after 
the next presidential election. What's your response to that? The response is not if we follow what I call the rule of democracy, what Attorney General Stanbury said in a couple instances, that when there is a uh, when there's uncertainty, the disqualification doesn't apply. Ultimately, if the Republican Party chooses to take that risk, and Republican and unaffiliated voters in the state of Colorado choose to make that choice, that is their choice. It should not be foreclosed from this court. Well, what, are, do, what do we do about Timmons then? Where in the, you, sorry, you, what do we do about Timmons, where the U.S. Supreme Court says there's no absolute right to put someone who's not qualified on the ballot? I, I would, and we're talking about a political party here. Right. And, 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 and I agree that there aren't absolute, absolute rights, but there's certainly at a minimum an ambiguity here. We don't think so on, uh, with respect to our approach. Um, but the Timmons and the Wisconsin Exarella Follett uh, cases nonetheless stand for political party First Amendment rights. That even if state law, for example, in the Wisconsin case, even if state law uh, mandates one thing on how to uh, assign uh, delegates, uh, state party rules prevail. So your view is, and I would take it, that the, if there, either party wants to put on, let's say, President Obama or someone who's 20 years old or Arnold Schwarzenegger, they have every right to do that? Conceivably, yes. Now, Wait, you say conceivably. You, yeah. What do you yeah. mean conceivably? Well, do they or don't they? I, and I, and I was about to <laughs> go forth. Look, I mean, Hillary Rudy testified, and it's not unreasonable, her testimony. And she said, look, the, the secretary can be involved in using the form, the form for the three Article Two qualifications, if it's an objective, knowable fact. So uh, then uh, if it's a fact question, the secretary can. So if there's a question about whether the person was born in this, was, was or was not born in this country, the secretary can't act. But if it's objectively nobody doubts it, then the secretary can. That's that, a tough standard. I agree. <laughs> that was her testimony, and that was her escape valve um, when, when pressed on that issue. But what is your take then on 1204 and the ability of an elector to challenge uh, let's say the Obama example, where the 22nd Amendment would prohibit him from serving because it limits a person from serving more than two terms as president. So let's say President Obama wants to be on the Democratic Party primary ticket, checks all the boxes, unlike Hassan, checks all the boxes, tenders the statement of intent. Can an elector challenge his qualification under 1204, and if not, why not? Um, I would say no. First of all, from a self -ex from a broader constitutional preemption justiceability question, um, Article 2 doesn't quite face the same self-execution issues. Um, the courts are split, but the weight of authority has been, because those cases were litigated, the weight of authority with respect to President Obama, Senator Cruz, and Senator McCain, all of whom were challenged on natural-born citizenship, the weight of authority is that states do not have the authority to be able to consider that. That's, Does it that's matter the way. that most of those were decided after the um, person was elected into office? Does that matter? Um, not, in that not in that aspect, uh, Your Honor. It does matter because we would submit, and we have said before, that this court should have never exercised jurisdiction because the complexity of this, the issues, mm -hmm. the truncated procedures, and the inappropriateness of the 113 in this instance. So I think that was more of a function of the time, mm -hmm. and they weren't considered moot because they were capable of repetition. What so I don't think that matters, though. Sorry. What does 1204 do, then? What can you challenge under 1204 for? 1204, let me step back. 
Remember, 1204 mandates a hearing within five days of the petition. And it mandates a decision within 48 hours. So, and it specifically refers to Section 113, uh, which requires a duty under the code. So that, with that structure in mind, 1204, it, the very structure of 1204 contemplates a very limited proceeding. And the limited proceeding is set forth in the substantive provisions of 1204, I believe it's 1 and 3. So for example, there has to be a certificate from the state party saying that the candidate's a bona fide candidate. The candidate has to be affiliated with a party that had received at least 20% of the vote. The candidate has to fill out a statement of intent. Questions as to exactly what the content of that statement of intent is required. There's no rule or regulation that the secretary's promulgated. It's merely a form which, uh, according to Hillary Rudy's testimony, never went through a, the process that was created by people within the uh, office and reviewed by their legal counsel, and that was it. Um, but those are very limited, very limited requirements. And under 113, there is not a duty. So to the question, the question if I may use that to transition a little bit to the, uh, to the 113 jurisdictional issues, could the Secretary of State simply said, I hereby make the determination. I think it's an obvious knowable fact, as she has said on TV. It's an obvious knowable fact. President Trump engaged in insurrection, therefore I keep him off the ballot. Let's say she said that. Does she have the authority to do that? I think the answer is no. She admitted she doesn't have the explicit authority to do it. So I think the court we, correctly recognized it. I yes, apologize, sir. Mr. Gessner. I, I guess I just keep wondering, well, then what are we supposed to do? Right? So there has to be some mechanism for review, doesn't there? And under your interpretation of things, is there really any? To the extent the way this would work would be the way Frazier suggested. And I didn't disagree. I didn't agree with Frazier. And I don't think you did either, Justice Gabriel. But I think this case <coughs> proves the correctness of Frazier, although I hate to admit it after 20 years of litigating this very issue. What the person would need to do would be file a declaratory judgment action outside of 113 to enforce the 14th Amendment. Would the DEC action be in federal court where there's a likelihood that the person wouldn't have Article Three standing? Funny you ask that. Yeah. <laughs> because it was brought in this very case. Oh. Remember, there were two counts in the petition. Right. One was a 113 slash 1204, and the other was a DEC action. We, moved, we, we removed it, snap removal to federal court. The petitioner said, no, 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 you can't do that because we have no concrete or particularized basis. So it has to be in state court. There's no federal jurisdiction. So it gets bounced back to state court. Then what we do is we say, well, you don't get the DEC action either because those are the same standards Colorado follows. After which the petitioners say, well, you're wrong, but we're still going to remove it in order to streamline the proceedings, which weren't streamlined because we litigated the entire constitutional issue nonetheless. But the Coming DEC action would right. be the proper approach. Mm -hmm. The DEC action would be the proper approach, and they would be required to meet the standing requirements, as other litigants have across the country, and these other issues in a, at most, preliminary injunction context, but also affording time to properly litigate them. I, I guess what I'm looking for, ultimately, is a meaningful opportunity for review. And that doesn't seem like one, at least, in, and maybe the history of this case demonstrates as much. So, so are we just stuck, I guess, is the question? No, I, I would say it's completely a meaningful opportunity re review. And look at Kuhn. Okay, Kuhn versus Williams. If you remember, that was a residency issue. This court bounced to the, there, there were two issues brought. One was a constitutional saying that the residency, residency requirements are unconstitutional. This court bounced it, saying you can't bring a constitutional claim. 
appropriate under Frazier. So what did the petitioners do, or what did the petitioners do? They immediately went to federal court in that case, and Judge Blackman in federal court said, you're right, they're unconstitutional. So there was adequate time for review of that constitutional issue in federal court. That was done under a preliminary injunction context, so they required a heightened standard of review. But that procedure has worked and worked fine. Let me ask you, Mr. Kessler, you rely a lot on Kuhn and Frazier. Do you not see those as distinguishable from this case? In those cases, there, were, there was a 113 action, and there was a 1983 proceeding challenging the constitutionality of the residence requirement. That was a separate claim not within the 113. Isn't that different than here? You, you, you say here it's a, the 113 action was a constitutional claim. Do you not see those as different? No, I, think, I don't think this is an independent, this was an independent claim as well. Look, I mean, this was dressed up as a 113 and a 1204 action. But, but let me push back on you a little bit, if I may. So if there was a 113 challenging the qualification of, you know, whether you're a citizen of the, uh, 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 born in this country or whether you're 35, I, I, I think you'd say that fits within 113. So if this, is, and I understand you disagree that this is a qualification here, but let's say hypothetically we disagreed. That would fit within 113. I think the other side would say this was an issue about whether President Trump was qualified. I think you'd have to look at the nature of the litigation itself. Okay? So I would use two or three different frameworks. Let's put the shoe on the other foot. Secretary rejects in an administrative basis. President Trump then has to sue. What do we sue under? We would sue under the 14th Amendment, and we would sue under the First Amendment, the Brandenburg Standard, saying he didn't engage in anything, in anything that incited violence. I'm sure the secretary, properly so under Frazier, would say, no, 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 you're challenging governmental action. You're challenging my action under the Constitution. You can't do that under the election code. You have to do it in a declaratory judgment action. Now, and here it's reversed, but it's the same concept. Why wouldn't the you, therefore, bring it under 113? I guess, why would you start with a losing argument? I, I'm, I'm confused by that. There are lots of kinds of actions where the the primary thing that's litigated isn't the underlying uh, basis for the suit. I think about any kind of malpractice case. The vast majority of a malpractice case might actually be the underlying claim, like a legal malpractice case, the, the claim that was lost. Um, but it's still a legal malpractice case. It's just that you spend most of your time talking about um, whether you lost the claim that you could have had. So the fact that a lot of ink was spilled and, and words were spilled on the Constitution doesn't make it a constitutional claim. The mere fact, I would agree with that. However, I think this differs, that this was, in fact, a constitutional claim. This whole thing is about constitutional litigation. There's no, look, the court recognized there's not a duty for the Secretary of State to investigate or consider disqualification under the 14th Amendment. The Secretary of State herself explicitly said there's no explicit And I don't authority. think they're arguing that uh, in the duty part of the language. I think there's, I, I understand them to be saying if the Secretary were to put President Trump's name on the primary ballot, that would be a wrongful act because the president, former president, is not qualified to be on the primary ballot. So. The, it's not an argument of dereliction of duty. It's an argument about a wrongful act. And under Kuhn, they're arguing, we can look at other evidence, evidence that she might not look at. Um, I think Frazier answers the other wrongful act. 
and rejected that expansive interpretation. And specifically, Frazier said, the problem with that is that there's no limiting principle. I say that because I made that argument. <laughs> and it did not succeed. And I will be honest, I think it's proper looking, because in large part, the Secretary of State said, these expedited proceedings are wholly inappropriate for something beyond the election code because of the complexity of them and the incompatibility with this. And this is exactly, I think, what happened in this case, where we were denied all discovery all discovery, no initial disclosures, no opportunities for depositions, a limited time frame of six weeks to prepare our case from nuts to bolts to contend with 400 conclusions within the January 6th report, which became 100, which ultimately became 31. So there were a lot of infirmities in these procedures, and that was first and foremost, I would submit, in the Frazier Court's mind. Um, Justice Gabriel, in his dissent, said, well, that can be and should be um, resolved with respect to a management order, a case management order in the trial court below. I think that optimism was probably misplaced as proven by this particular case. So this was, in fact, in substance and in consequence, constitutional litigation. This was not a duty under the election code, which is what 113 requires. The reason why 113 has expedited procedures, the reason why they are appropriate and tolerated um, and endorsed in the election context is because they are generally simple, straightforward duties that don't involve complex constitutional litigation. So is the, is the rule that the secretary has authority if it's simple and not complex, but doesn't if there is? I mean, that's that, it, hard to articulate a standard like that. I think the standard's the constitutional standard, to be sure. A residency requirement like the type that was litigated in Kuhn can be complex. But it's not complex like this, and it's not complex like a constitutional issue, and it doesn't carry with it the same consequences, oftentimes, the precedential consequences as well. So and com I complex and complicated is what I'm hearing the standard is. Well, constitutional. <laughs> because the Fraser Court properly equated that, but the Fraser well, I Court... Heard, I heard your answer to Justice Hart I, in, in okay. terms of... of you're yeah, teasing how, me, Your Honor. I, I am teasing you. I, I'll take the teasing. So Mr. What about, Gesser, let me, oh, let me, okay, let me, let me take it, and your time is so short, and I, sh I know you want to get to the merits, but while we're going through all the jurisdictional boxes here, let me take you to the uh, whether the president's included in the 14th Amendment. And I'll ask you just a, a specific question. Um, I'm a little surprised to not have heard on the intervener side and the amici on, on your side a real full-throated response to the absurdity doctrine argument. I mean, there's an argument here, and I'd like you to respond to it. Um, how is it not, and I'm not making fun of any of this, how is it not absurd to say anybody who engaged in insurrection can't serve an office who engage, except the president or a former president or a vice president or a former president? How is that not absurd? So the absurdity doctrine requires, and looking at sort of the Scalia-Garner definition, which is as probably the best out there, um, it has to sort of be beyond, beyond reason. It couldn't even be reasonable for the framers to take that approach. And here's the approach the framers took, and we have to look at the historical context as well. They said the presidency, remember it's office under the United States, officer of the United States, so we're talking office under the United States, is protected through presidential electors, through presidential electors. So that's one protection. 
The second protection was... But, I'm sorry to interrupt before you go on to the second, but do you really think the framers took a whole lot of comfort in the fact that the electors are going to protect us from an insurrectionist former president like a Jefferson Davis? Yes, and that's why they included them. So That's why they included them. But, but let me finish, if I may, for my other by, two By points. all means. They sure. also looked at the freedmen, former slaves who could now vote, and then they also looked at the electoral strength that the northern, northern states had to provide comfort. It's perfectly reasonable in this context. And by the way, they were right. They were right for 100 years. It wasn't 100 years until a southerner got elected. Now, I'm not saying Jimmy Carter was an insurrectionist by any means, but before you even had a southerner elected. So not only was it not absurd, but their framework and approach was successful. It was very successful. And, 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 and when you look at the actual language, look, if you look at the structure of the text, it is harmonious. It was very carefully drafted, and every indicator points towards excluding the presidency and the president. Officer of the United States is used in four different contexts of the United States Constitution, every one of them which excludes, properly viewed, the president. The appointment clause, of course, there's been a lot of discussion on. And so, fair enough. So, what is the, it does also refer to repeatedly the office of the president and the like. What office is, under uh, the United States, officer of the United but States. But when it talks about the president, yes, it sir. describes that as an office. Correct. What, so, the president is an officer. What is the president, president an officer of? So, the, um, if I can find my notes quick enough, um, the analysis that has been found is that the president is an officer of, to the extent we have that concept, of the Constitution. So an office under the United States is one created by the United States government. An officer of the United States is one that serves the United States government. And there is um, precedent that says, look, senators, representatives, and the presidency, president, they are the government. That's sort of the reasonable, the analysis, the distinction. And, 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 and look, opposing counsel pointed to the um, emoluments clause as absurd. How could you possibly believe a president would not be part of the emoluments clause? Well, I would suggest you walk into Mount Vernon, and you will see above the fireplace a full-length portrait of King Louis the, Louis the 16th that was given to George Washington by the French government. And no one batted an eye. It was never viewed as a violation of the Emoluments Clause, because no one thought that it applied to George Washington. There's also the key to the Bastille that was given by, by a representative of the French government. We've got enough Lafayette. on our hands without emoluments, right? So, mm. uh, but I, I wanted to point out the, the structural point, that it's all consistent with the president not being well, part. Let me, let me um, just harken back to something that was said by opposing counsel, and that is, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to attribute significance to what the framers did with Article 2, Article 6, given that we're talking about framing and ratification that occurred during the Restoration. So um, I, I, maybe it's part of the puzzle, but is it really all that illuminating when we're talking about 80 years difference, and shouldn't we be looking to other sources given that uh, amount of time? I think it's very illuminating, Your Honor. I mean, the, the one thing I think everyone would agree on would be that the framers of the original Constitution, like the drafters of the 14th Amendment, spent lots of time thinking a lot of deep thoughts about the exact language that should be used. And I think we should all assume that those words were chosen with care. And the words in Section 3, in multiple ways, mimic 
the exact language of the underlying Constitution. Officer of the United States. They use that phrase exactly. They use office under the United States. They don't use officer under the United States. No one ever uses that language. It's office under the United States, officer of the United States. The oath. So here's an important point I would make. Petitioners say, well, they're synonymous. doesn't matter. They really sort of include the same. But if you think about what actually happened with the framers, they have before them a United States Constitution, the original Constitution. I'm talking about, I'm sorry, the drafters of the 14th Amendment. And there are two oaths, one that clearly applies to the president and one that clearly applies to appointed officers. Although, as Justice Marcus pointed out, there's no language under Article 6. It just says swear an oath. An oath. There is language. The <clears throat> language says to support. Now, people interpret it differently, but that's the language of the Constitution. And my point is this. The drafters of the 14th Amendment said, hmm, what oath am I going to choose? They chose the Article 6 oath. Remember, they had before them choices. They could choose the Article 6 oath. They could choose the Article 6 and the Article 2 oath. They could choose neither oaths, or they could choose both of them. They chose one and one only, the one that did not include the one that was covered different. everybody. I think that's, that's also, it seems to make no sense to me, I'm going to circle back to the absurdity argument, that if the purpose of Section 3 was to punish oath breakers, that you would set up uh, a provision that punishes those who break the lesser oath but exempts persons who break the arguably more serious oath to preserve, protect, and defend. What is the rationale for that type of exclusion? Is it a lesser oath versus a more stringent oath? I think that's a presumption we're making that may or may not be warranted because there's not much case law can defining you, the two. So what, can you make point, the argument that an oath to support is stronger than an oath to preserve, protect, and defend? The yes. Constitution? Preserve, protect, and defend are specific words, specific actions. Support is a general category and far broader. And Support can mean all kinds of things. As like shown, preserve, protect, and defend. It can mean that, but it can mean other things. Or it could be viewed as narrower. The preserve, protect, and defend are very, are very strong charges, and support is to help those who preserve and protect. And, and so the and logical defend. consequence but, of that, though, is that the president doesn't have a duty to support. I mean, that's your argument, right? No, my argument is this. My argument is that the drafters chose specific language. And the language they chose was language that the underlying United States Constitution treated as separate things. We can argue about whether the underlying Constitution should have treated them as separate things. We can argue about whether functionally they should or should not be separate things. Well, I think, I think but the drafters of the 14th Amendment about, made a choice. I, I think that I, what we're asking about is the meaning. And what you're arguing about is the meaning. And what I hear you saying is, Support is a lesser standard. No, what I'm saying is this. I'm saying the meaning is that the drafters chose to exclude the United States, the, the presidency, by using specific language. I'm sorry, the president, the officer of the United States. My point is the drafters made a choice to exclude. Why? Based on, by choosing the support oath language, which mimics exactly Article 6, which applies to appointed officers. And they did not choose the Article 2, which applies to the president. And I guess I, I found, it, I read a lot of briefing over the last couple of weeks. I saw no rational reason for that type of an exclusion. The historical record is devoid of that discussion. We can make it up here. 
we can come up with ideas. We have a lot of historical evidence to the contrary, suggesting everybody thought that it did include Jefferson Davis. Or I would suggest someone. that there's a real paucity of uh, evidence. When you actually analyze the, the, um, the citations made by the petitioners, it comes down to roughly one or maybe two newspaper articles during the entire ratification debates. I would not concede that point, Your Honor. I do not. Can you come up with a rational basis for excluding either the office of the presidency or someone who swore an oath as a president I think from, from the Section 3 disqualification? The answer is yes. And I think it, the, the drafters, they, took, they rejected McKee's draft. They removed the presidency, the president, and they added presidential electors in. I, and that I understand was the, the textual argument. I'm trying to understand the basis, the, the rationale. Why? I think that is the rational argument. The rationale, because, not the rational. <laughs> <laughs> With an E, rationale. I think, it, um, I think that is the rationale, Your Honor. I, I just do. I think that's what we need to accept, is that the framers, the drafters of Section 14 made those choices in that era and it's not absurd because it worked. So the choice you're saying is that they chose to include the electors instead of the president? Yes. It's but to accomplish the same purpose, in other words, the <coughs> electors, if this worked as designed, would prevent anyone from that, in that situation from assuming the office. Well, so why go about it indirectly when you could just go about it directly? I guess we go into a more, I don't want to use the word metaphysical, but a more abstract argument <clears throat> is, if the entire nation chooses someone to be president, can that be an insurrection? Or is that democratic choice? Can, you know, remember, the president is a little bit different. Everyone in the country has an opportunity or should have an I opportunity don't, to vote for that person. Oh, go ahead. I don't think anyone here is, is suggesting, and I don't take the petitioners to have been arguing, that the election of a person as president is an insurrection. I, th I think that what the insurrection might have been is a different question. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure where you're going with that argument. I'm, I'm going with the broader context of the president is different. And if everyone in the country chooses a particular person as a president. So if everyone chose an insurrectionist, Jefferson Davis, let's use that example. If Jefferson Davis want, ran a while ago, and the, and the electors who, who were not themselves insurrectionists chose to put him into the presidency, that would be fine under Section 3, and that would be consistent with the purposes of Section 3. That would be the rule of democracy in work. But yes. the rule of and democracy, there, there are limits. I mean, the president can't be under 35 or can't be, uh, you know, someone who wasn't born in this country. That, so you could, I mean, the argument, if you take your argument to the limit, it would say they can, we can elect Governor Schwarzenegger or, you know, my 27-year-old kid. I, I, I don't think it goes that far. It's, the, it's that rule embodied in the text of Section 3. Now, there are plenty of anti-majoritarian measures in the, in the structural constitution. And there are these qualifications. No one argues that. But when we're interpreting section three of the 14th Amendment, and we look at the history behind that and the context and the language they used. They used off, look, the, for, to satisfy the conditions of section three, you have to be an office 
under the United States. You have to hold the office under the United States, and you have to be an officer under the United States, and you have to take an oath. So you have to have all four of those items in place. Any one of them, Section 3 does not apply. Sticking, stepping away from Article 3, though, for a second and sticking with the Constitution, could the Democratic Party put President Obama up for on the primary ballot? Could that happen? I haven't done a full analysis of that particular provision, Your Honor. I'm really sort of focused more on Section 3, but could they do it? Conceivably, I think it's an open question. If you look at the political question analysis of the Article 2 courts, the weight of authority, was that states could not could not prevent that. If so, I understand your democratic process argument, that would seem to be the logical conclusion. I'm just trying to make sure I understand the breadth. The breadth is confined to Section 3, Your Honor. But, but stepping away, because you were focused also on the Constitution. Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on the structural Constitution to look at the language Officer of the United States is used four times in the structural constitution, and each time it does not apply to the U.S. president. Can, can, oh, go ahead. I mean, not once does it apply. No, I know. You, you, you didn't answer my question, but that's okay. I'm not gonna, you, I want to let you use your time the way you want to use your time. So I, I feel like we're Please going feel to, free to take another run at me, Your Honor. I, I do want to be responsive. Yes, sir. <clears throat> I, I feel like we're going in circles to some extent right now. I'm just wondering if we could shift. Years. I, I was hoping to talk about the First Amendment um, and Brandenburg. Um, obviously, you've briefed at length the assertion that uh, President Trump did not advocate violence in his speech on the ellipse. And so um, the counterargument to that is that we have to look at context, and they, they assert that uh, we should, well, the trial court obviously did place a lot of reliance on Professor Simi's testimony and, and coded language. Um, I, I'm just wondering if you can give us your perspective on the extent to which um, precedent allows for that kind of analysis. I, I struggle with what I see as a lack of precedent on that particular issue, how far context goes. Uh, what's your take? Um, context plays limited and probably no, almost no role. Now, look, this isn't a case, you know, the incitement, and obviously we contest that incitement is part of engage happy to address that as well. But this isn't an instance of sort of planning, joint planning or a joint agreement where President Trump had specific conversations back and forth. That's not what this is about. It's about inciting based on his public speech, his public speech. That's what, that's what it's about. So in saying that, I apologize for interrupting, but are you saying just look at January 6th and nothing else? Um, I will look at both. But to meet the imminence standard under, um, the, under the Brandenburg analysis, you have to look at just January 6th. That's really what you have to look at. And if you look at January 6th, his speech said, go peacefully and patriotically. Um, he made two tweets followed by a video during the f- subsequent three hours. But, but he also said probably 20 times fight. He said yeah. it once, and he said... Um, I was ready for this question. Oh, okay, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> um, and, and, and what he said is, he talked about that he was unhappy with what happened on January 6th, and people told him not to be involved. And he said, I am, because we have to fight. We have to fight in order to keep our country. He didn't say, 
and this may be splitting a little bit of hairs, but he actually did tell the crowd, go fight. He said, if we're going to protect, if, if I'm going to do the right thing, we have to fight. Okay? Now, the thing that Simi testified about in particular was that use of the word fight and the methods and, uh, and language that President Trump used is perfectly consistent with normal patterns of political discourse. And in fact, we provided evidence that showed that fight, fight like hell, fight like your lives dependent on those various iterations are used commonly throughout political discourse. So, I'm sorry, finish your thought and then I'll jump in. So the objective use of the language doesn't shift. I mean, we don't have a President Trump rule where if he says fight like hell, it's violent. And if other politicians, and we included you know, senators and President, President Biden uses the term fight like hell. It's not an incitement to violence. We still look at the objective standards. I mean, we made analogy to federal campaign finance law, Justice Roberts, who said an intent in an effect to test is not appropriate. You look at the objective words that someone uses. And the objective words, he said, go down. I know you are going to march down there peacefully and patriotically. He used two tweets saying, stay peaceful. And he third made a video that said, be peaceful and go home. Now, uh, yeah, I, I want to let you keep going. Yeah. Now, right. now, the petitioners are going to say, look, those tweets don't matter because he didn't say it right. He didn't tell people to go home. He just said, be peaceful. But the objective language is saying, be peaceful. And we produced one witness on the stand who said, the instructions I got from President Trump were to stay peaceful because he heard the speech. Yes, sir. So this just keeps reminding me of something I've struggled with as I've tried to evaluate this particular piece of it, and that is that uh, are we not dealing with clear error review of the trial court's factual findings about those circumstances? And I realize that from your perspective, a lot of those findings were predicated on a report that never should have come into evidence, but setting that to the side for one moment, you know, aren't we to a large extent stuck with the trial court's findings um, and uh, findings that were made by clear and convincing, uh, clear and convincing standard, even though you chose not to brief the preponderance of the evidence issue that you outlined in the application. So I'm sort of throwing multiple issues in here. But I just, I, I, I don't know that we are in a position to say that there was clear error with respect to her findings of uh, his intent um, and, and what, what happened that day and what led up to it, including uh, the reliance on Professor Simi's testimony? Well, I don't think it's clear error to apply the facts to the proper legal standard. And the court used the improper legal standard in determining what is in sight. Look, the facts are relatively uncontroverted with respect to what actually happened because the petitioners rely entirely upon tweets, videos, and speeches. I mean, that's, that's the, their case. But there are inferences that are made, particularly by Professor Simi, about what significance should be attached to things that happened before January 6th, right? So, um, And that's a legal standard. And we are saying that the events, the tweets and speeches in the years leading prior is inappropriate under the Brandenburg imminent standard. And that is a legal standard, and they should not be considered. So, And we didn't even dispute the underlying facts. We do, of course, dispute the inferences. And I would note that Professor Simi himself said that he did not address intent at all Although in his analysis. Although the trial court did, right? I mean, she found specific... And it's clear error for her doing that. Okay. I mean, that, that, that is clear error in, in those conclusions. But this court can nonetheless review them because it's the application of facts to the improper legal standard. And the facts are the tweets. Look, the facts are all public public tweets, 
public speech, public videos. And, and we don't contest any of that, what, he, what President Trump said in the evidence that was presented at trial. So, um, so I, think, I think this court doesn't need to look at the clear error. Because look, both, it was not just engagement, insurrection. And, and, and let me just talk a moment about insurrection. Justice Gabriel, you talk, I think a, a couple of folks brought up the different definitions. Do we have a consistent definition? I think you did as well, Justice. Said. Look, the proponents of liability for Trump used... Not liability. You said liability for Trump? Or that, that Trump should be disqualified, the proponents. Okay, but, but we're not, again, this isn't a Section 3 claim where there's any kind of liability. Yeah, I misspoke, Your Honor. Um, there's two, four, six, seven different definitions. The, the petitioners in their complaint advocate, and I can, I'm not going to spend time unless you want me to read each one of these, but the petitioners in their complaint advocated one standard. Professor Magliaca advocated a different standard. The court adopted yet a different standard. Bowden-Paulson have had yet a fourth standard. Professor Graber provided a fifth standard. The site to Judge John Cain's grand jury charge, which we don't think has much force, but it has yet another standard. And the Simon Greenleaf treatise that was, treatise that was relied upon has yet another standard. Those are all different standards, two of which have been propounded by the petitioners themselves. Now, the petitioners say, well, it doesn't matter. They all include President Trump. They all include him. But I would suggest that the fact that the actual proponents of this proposition have themselves identified seven separate and distinct standards, some of which require a public use of force, some of which don't, some of which require um, hindrance, some of which don't, some of which apply the, to the Constitution, execution of the Constitution, some of which don't and apply to the execution of a law. Um, Why don't you focus, because your time is limited, on the one the district court adopted. And to, I mean, any public use of force or threat of force by a group of people to hinder or prevent the execution of the Constitution. What's wrong with that definition? Way too broad. I think the petitioners actually admitted that a group of people threatening a mailman and preventing him or her from, uh, from executing their constitutional duties, because that's one of the constitutional powers that Congress has, would constitute an insurrection. What if we narrowed it to say, prevent the peaceful transfer of power of the United States government? Would that be an insurrection? To prevent the peaceful transfer? I don't think so, and I'm not sure, Your Honor. Look, I mean, if you look at historically in the context of how insurrection was used, I mean, it has to be for a substantial duration, not three hours. Um, there has to be some geographical scope. There has to be a goal of nullifying all, all, all governmental authority in an area. I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure where you're, you said it has to be, where the temporal provision, where is all that coming from? I mean, Webster's Third New International Dictionary defines it as an act or instance of revolting against civil authority or against an established I, government. So you've added a whole lot of conditions there. I'm not sure where it came from. I would, I would urge you, I, I think probably the best exposition of that was the state attorney general's briefs and the, and the authority that they provided. Okay? But I think also if you look at sort of the historical record. Now, now you're going to tell me, uh, Mr. Gesser, you're making it up. And I'm going to say, well, so did the judge. And I'll say, we're all sort of making it up at the end of the day. Well, I, 
and uh, yes, sir. I just want to jump in on this point of how I don't know that we have to come up with a test that's going to necessarily address all circumstances. I guess the question, at least as to insurrection, you know, setting apart whether President Trump engaged in insurrection, but as to insurrection, why isn't it enough that a violent mob breached the Capitol when it was when Congress was performing a core constitutional function. I, in some ways, that seems like a poster child for insurrection. Why is that not true? Well, I, I, I think what you're sort of saying is the famous quote. I don't know, I don't know a definition of it, but I know it when I see it. Um, you know that we don't have a workable standard, <clears throat> but we think in this instance there. Probably it doesn't feel good, and it just seems well. It's seems more than it do, it's more than it doesn't feel good. I, I, for purposes of this case, what we need to do is figure out whether what happened on January six. One of the things we need to do is figure out whether what happened on January six constituted an insurrection. We don't need to come up with a definition for all times and all circumstances. And I think most common sense thinking folk would look at it and say, you have sedition at one end of the spectrum, uh, and you have Levying war is the term that you've used. Civil war maybe at the other end. But in between, we have these things, insurrection, rebellion. I think we'd agree that insurrection is typically something less than rebellion. I, and, and I would agree with that in, in the case, and in, in some of the authorities support it. But it's more than a riot. It's more than a three-hour riot on one building. Was that just a riot on January 6th? And we think it's properly characterized that way and not as insurrection. And remember, look, the Constitution, Section 3, says engage in insurrection. It doesn't say in an insurrection. What's the significance of that? I think that it indicates sort of a more a broader process rather than a singular limited-in-scope event. And if you look at the Civil War, that was a broad four-year four year. That uh, was actually more than an insurrection, wasn't it? I mean, the Civil War, yes. I think, I believe levying war was the, I mean, <laughs> yeah. insurrection is getting at something less than a war. Likely, yes. Okay. Now, there are lots of instances in the ratification debates and, and the framing debates, and I think the AGs pointed this out in their, in their memo, that you know, insurrection, rebellion, war, treason are oftentimes used interchangeably. Um, by by the drafters. And in fact, you look at some of the authorities here, the petitioner's site, they'll shift from insurrection in some instances and draw examples from treason or rebellion. So they are used very interchangeably. So we would argue that, you know, sort of on the scale of violence and duration and scope and organization, uh, the events of January 6th were more like a riot and far less like far less than a rebellion, and insurrection is far closer to rebellion than it is riot. How would you define insurrection? Part of my whole thesis is that we can't define it, and that's in part why this is a non-justiciable question. But to the extent you push me, which you are, uh, I, I would say it requires at least multiple considerations that go beyond what we had here. I think the duration has to be longer than three hours. Um, I think the geographical scope has to be broader than one building. And you say, well, that was the U.S. Capitol. True. It wasn't the Pentagon. It wasn't, um, it, it was a singular node. It, the goal wasn't to nullify governmental authority and set up an alternative government. Mm -hmm. The goal as, if one assumes, if one assumes the predicate that President Trump directed the crowd, which we reject, to to get Mike Pence, Vice President Pence, 
to delay the certification. That's not nullification. And I understand it's violent, and I understand it's bad, but we, as I would submit, as lawyers in this process, need to distinguish those gradations because they have meaning. And what I would say is the goals were not as broad as something like the Shays Rebellion or Whiskey Rebellion. The organization, there was very little evidence of a robust command and control structure and that level of organization. The use of force did not, did not involve arms, certainly not the level of arms necessary to overcome. Well, well, and, let me just jump in there, Mr. And Kennedy. it wasn't capable of being rebellion. Yes, sir. Well, the arms, I mean, you make a legitimate point about, um, you know, not, there not being a lot of evidence of arms being taken to um, the Capitol on January 6th, but there were a lot of makeshift weapons that did a lot of damage. I think the, at least the petitioners are saying 170 people were injured. Um, that, that's a lot of violence, right? You'd agree. And, and irrespective of whether people brought guns and knives to the event, um, I, I don't know that we need to, um, I don't know, pause too much about that when we have that level of violence. What am I missing? What you're missing is a riot is consistent with using flagpoles and broken up bike racks as weaponry. An insurrection or rebellion is, more is organized, deadly force that's going to nullify government authority. I think there's a big difference there. And, and look, I understand that the violence on the Capitol was not acceptable. But I do think that it is our job to apply legal standards and understand the gradations involved and whether or not this truly rises to the level of insurrection. Well, why don't you talk about engagement? You've only got three minutes and 40 seconds. So, and I'll just ask you a question to help move this along, hopefully. My concern, I guess, would be, I, I understand what the argument you make, engage doesn't mean incite. Those are different things. A leader of an insurrection usually is not involved, in, or frequently is not involved in the hand-to-hand -hand fighting. They direct it, they organize it, and then they stand back and they watch it. Um, that would be engagement, I would think, if you had an actual insurrection. So help me understand what engage means. Well, I think that does. And what that requires is sort of a two-way conversation. Hey, you sergeant or lieutenant, I'm the general. I'm going to do this. You're going to do that. Um, that's different than public speeches. Now, now, look. I mean, if there were a public speech and 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 someone said, oh, and made an agreement with the other side and say, when I say during my public speech the eagle has landed, then we take action. I would submit that that's engage, but that's a much different instance than incite here. Incite is to sort of arouse these emotions only through public speech. It's a one-way conversation. So, so if a leader did a more direct, I want you, and let's make this hypothetical. A leader said, uh, President, I want you to go to the Capitol, and I want you to take it over, and I want you to ensure that, that they do not go forward uh, on the Electoral College um, and use violence if need be. That would be engagement even if the leader doesn't go with them? Very likely, yes. Okay. Very likely, yes. If, though, if there is an understanding, an agreement, and not some broad inferential conditioning that Professor Simi testified. I don't think that meets the legal standard. But there has to be very definite um, uh, sort of meeting of the minds that that's, in fact, going to happen for it to be engagement. Now, it could still be incitement because it's a direct call for violence, which did not happen here. But there is a difference between the two. They do describe. And, and I would point out that Congress is 
treated it as distinct. You know, you look at the Second Confiscation Act in 18 U.S.C. 2383, it says whoever incites, set foot, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection. So they treat it as differently. And by the way, if I may say, at the end they say, incitement, sets on foot, assists, uh, they shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States, which indicates that the presidency is, cannot be barred by mere statute. Um, of Congress. So that's that language under the United States again. Um, consistent usage and, and pattern of that. Uh, let me just sort of end up in my uh, wrap up in the last minute here. This was constitutional litigation. Had the shoe been on the other foot, had the secretary taken action and President Trump would have been required to, uh, to file a lawsuit, um, that would be constitutional litigation as well. And all of the dangers and infirmities that uh, Frazier warned about, that Kuhn recognized, um, that happened here. This was an inappropriate forum for this. It should have been a declaratory judgment action. They could have fought out the standing issues, and we would have done that appropriately. And that's a pattern that has been followed in Colorado in the past. With that said, if you look at the text and the direct textual application of Section 3, it, does not, it doesn't mention the president. And every structural piece that we've discussed, the natural and comfortable meaning, points towards the president's exclusion. That fits in with the broader fact that it's not enforceable by state courts against a federal official. The court should not have engaged in, engaged, <laughs> engaged in interpreting, engaged in insurrection. Certainly the January 6th report was deficient. Uh, we ask this court affirm the district court below, but also strike the dicta from the decision as beyond that court's jurisdiction. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Gessler. Mr. Olson, you got about three minutes, 46 seconds. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. In short, Trump claims this case is too hard for courts to decide, that the standards of insurrection can't be determined but that's exactly what courts did do, and that's exactly what the district court did below. And to the extent there's a dispute between courts that reach these questions, our country has a well-worn mechanism for addressing those inconsistencies. I want to talk briefly about insurrection, office officer, and then end on the Colorado Election Code. Justice Hood, you asked how far context goes. It does a great deal of work. In Claiborne Hardware, this court said, or the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Stevens said very explicitly that evidence of authorization of wrongful conduct in other circumstances was relevant to whether the speech at issue there was uh, within or outside the First Amendment. And because there was no other authorization, no other evidence, they found uh, the, the speech protected by the First Amendment. Here, the district court made extemporaneous findings, or extensive findings that the, the uh, speech by President Trump um, on paragraphs uh, 288 to 298 were very, there's a long pattern of him saying things, seeing violence, praising that violence. He used those exact same words on January 6th. Is, is Simi's testimony subject to clear error review? Do you, is that, are those facts that the trial court ended up making based on his testimony uh, subject to anything other than clear air review here? 
they're subject to clear air review, but the court didn't just rely on Simi's testimony. No, I know. She set forth a number of, of facts, of, of statements by Trump himself, where there was violence. And in the speech on the lips, there were 20 times he called to fight, which is a literal call to violence. He said that 20 times. It wasn't in the prepared speech. He did that so that people wouldn't know that he was going to call people to march to the Capitol. He was going to incite them to violence. Hess also looks at the rational inference from the import of language. And there's no better evidence of what happened than evidence that Trump didn't object to below. And that was Brad Parscale, his former campaign manager, in real time on January 6th said, we are seeing, quote, a sitting president call for civil war. That easily meets the incitement uh, standard under the, under the First Amendment. And I was amazed. There's a tweet at 2.24 p.m. on January 6th. Trump never mentioned it in his briefs below, never mentioned it at trial. When he was describing what happened on January 6th today, he ignored the tweet on January, uh, on January 6th at 2.24, which sent the mob into a frenzy. There was unrebutted testimony that that poured gasoline on the fire and caused the Capitol to be breached. If this is not incitement, I don't know what is. Secondly, Justice Hood, to your question about is there a meaningful alternate procedure, you heard there is none. What Trump wants is for everyone to take a pass on this issue and then create the ingredients for a second January 6th coming up on January 2025. Justice Gabriel, you asked about presidential electors being a bulwark against electing Jefferson Davis. That won't work because only those that have taken an oath before the insurrection are disqualified by the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Electors, insurrectionists can be electors. They just can't be oath-taking insurrectionists. And finally, um, Justice Marquez, on the the concern about uh, the 22nd Amendment being enforced by the Secretary of State here, if I may finish, Your Honor, briefly. Briefly. Yes, thank you. Here, on this fact pattern, (laughs) Trump certified to the Secretary of State, using the statement of intent, that he met, quote, all qualifications to be president. Her putting him on the ballot with that certification is a wrongful act under Colorado Election Code and is why we bring this case under 113. And nowhere in the Election Code, anywhere in the Election Code, are any presidential qualifications mentioned. The only way we get there is by bringing in uh, the constitutional requirements into the freestanding election code that we talked about earlier. Thank you all very, very much for your consideration of this case. Again, we urge that the court affirm below with the exception of the office officer decision. Thank you very much. All right. I want to thank the uh, counsel who made argument. Um, I also want to thank the uh, attorneys that provided the amicus briefs. Um, I, I think it goes beyond, I think, the average... Uh, appreciation for how hard people have worked in the t- in the time frame that this has been required, and I want to compliment uh, the quality of the work and the professionalism. Um, so, with that, the case will stand submitted, and we will be in recess. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. 
And as always, thanks for listening.